From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. You know, think of what you need in terms of skills and abilities and, and when you need it, hire to your gaps and your own skill set. And that is like number one. If you get the right people on board, your job is so much easier. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Tom Schodorf, former CRO of Splunk. After a successful 18-year run at BMC, Tom decided to join a small company with just over $30 million in revenue. Although outsiders thought the move was risky, Tom had confidence in the market opportunity, in the leadership team, and most importantly, in his own ability to build a high-performance sales engine that the company would need to become world-class. But even Tom will admit that the results defied his wildest dreams. Five years after he joined, Splunk generated over $1 billion in revenue. On today's show, Tom shares the playbook he used to deliver those astonishing results. It revolves around holding every member of the sales organization absolutely accountable to deliver on their responsibilities. Tom also sits on several boards and shares advice regarding the traps that many startups stumble into and how to avoid them. Let's dive into the conversation. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Justin, it's great to be here. Thank you. All right, Tom, we've got a lot of great material to get to, but I needed to start off calling out the fact you grew up in Columbus, Ohio. As a kid, you've got a lawn mowing business. I understand that you pushed around one of the most expensive lawn mowers in Columbus. So fill us in on this lawn mower and what made it so expensive. Yeah, that was good old dad. He was uh, he was an entrepreneur of sorts and he owned and ran a small manufacturing operation. And part of that operation was an interest in a Ford uh, tractor dealership that, same, that shared the same piece of property. So he got friends and family discounts on tractors, farm tractors. Uh, when we became, we, me and my uh, four brothers, uh, became of age for hard labor, which in our family was about the age of 10, uh, we, started, we started cutting grass. And dad brought home a tractor one day and, and said we could use it for our jobs. So we said, hey, this is great. It's much better than a hand mower. Uh, we could do about four times the work in, this, in the same amount of hours. Um, and, and, you know, we were just completely hooked. Uh, the, the thing is, is after we got used to it, then is when he told us what the cost would be. And the cost was we had to give him one half of our entire take all the time forever for that tractor. And I think, uh, I think dad, I guess he was the, uh, an early adopter of the freemium model, the, the try before you buy kind of freemium model. But uh, we paid for that tractor many, many times over. A classic mistake. You did not read the T's and C's of the contract and he had you. Did not do that. He did not send us to lawyering school at age of 10. So, <laughs> but there were a lot of lessons there. Um, uh, to learn. Everybody was a winner, for one. I mean, uh, you know, our customers got a good, tight, 
you know, clean cut, much better than what a hand mower would do in, in those days, especially with the, the high end tractor that we got. Um, we also learned it's a free market. You know, if we didn't want the deal that dad offered, then we could go back to, you know, the old way or we simply wouldn't have any spending money. It's it's our choice. Yep. Capital capital is king once again uh, demonstrated in the experimental world of of the market economy. I love it. All right, so so you mastered the art of cutting grass and then matriculated to the grocery store business and spent some time there. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was um you know, it's it's a razor thin margin business. Uh, but but in a grocery store, if you've ever worked in it, uh, it has a lot of stuff going on. Uh, there's you learn about inventory and margins, especially if your boss is measured on margin, which he was. He always had a nice car, by the way. I'm not sure why. Uh, maybe we were very efficient uh, and he reaped the benefits on his bonus plan. But uh, but you learn about, you know, waste and because you didn't want waste and efficiency and uh, you know, how long things last, like meat and produce. And, you know, you're pretty young. You don't, you, know, you aren't necessarily taught these things in the home. Um, you learn things like pricing, like, uh, you know, when do you mark down the bread uh, so that you can get the maximum price, uh, but also that you don't end up having to throw it away because it's past its expiration date. And just a simple thing, but you you learn about that. How, how to run a, a complex logistical operation from ordering to unloading trucks, stocking shelves, making sales, uh, you know, looking at, looking after all the departments. Uh, we, we had the opportunity as workers there to, and if you were working your way up to mop the floors, polish them, clean the restrooms, use the safe, handle the money, um, you know, make sure your customers come back. If they don't come back, you don't have a job. You don't have a job there. So, you want to make sure and do a good job on the on the negative side or perhaps the negative side. You learn a little bit about the the other side of people, you know, people who, who might steal from the store or or even employees who would uh, who would take some cash from the till from time to time. So you, you saw that as well. Um, and it, it, at times it's it's hard when you see that to not grow up a, a little bit cynical. Uh, but ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Uh, people are great, and and it was an awesome experience. I, I guess the that part of it was more about growing up and seeing the real world for what it is, uh, rather than what you would like it to be. Yeah, you know, in many respects, it is a laboratory of sorts, and you're in that laboratory experiencing firsthand business. You're seeing the trade offs, the puts and the takes. I was just talking to my son over the weekend. He's in seventh grade. And we were talking about a, uh, a product that he's very interested in. And we started talking about pricing strategies. Now, he's thought a lot about this product. So he's got his head in the game. And we started talking about the trade-off between volume and unit price and finding the, you know, the optimum uh, level between those two. And it was a really interesting conversation because it was a product that he understood and related to. And then I said, well, what if this product was donuts? instead of the product we were talking about. And all of a sudden he started, I mean, he figured out, yeah, that's perishable. So if I don't sell them all, they're gone. But I think there's tremendous value to putting a young person in that kind of an environment, letting them experience it firsthand, and then teaching them the principles of business 
that will ultimately allow them to be successful when they have to run businesses of their own. Exactly. And the, and the great thing about that job in, in the grocery store was because it was such a, a complex operation, um, I could s- start to discover what what I liked and what I didn't, such as mm-hmm. having different roles, having the opportunity to have different roles in the store as you got more responsibilities, you showed up for work as you did a good job, uh, help, help formulate for later in life, even if you don't realize it. And, and I learned that not only do I like varied roles, but I liked to lead and train and coach uh, new kids coming coming into the ranks. And of course, these are only 16, 17 year old kids. But and I was, you know, 17 or 18. So it wasn't like yeah. there was a big delta in there. But uh, but leading from the front and and helping them come on board. Uh, and, and sometimes even uh, at the request of your boss who's out driving his nice car, having to fire them or yep. ha- encourage them to leave the business is great learning experience. Yeah. All right, so you you really cut your teeth in the grocery business, and then eventually, uh, once you're out of school, made your way to IBM. Now, IBM at this time is known as one of the great sales companies. Tell me a little bit about what distinguished IBM. What made them so great? Well, they were they were great, and they probably still are good, although I don't hear it as much anymore at sales training. And they had a boot camp that was about a year long, with um, you know two to three week stints in either Dallas or Atlanta uh, with your, your other colleagues from around the country that were kind of thrown together, newbies. And, uh, and then you'd, you'd go back to your office and work a few months from there with a mentor or a coach and or typically a senior sales rep. And then you'd go off to training again. And, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pressure to be tops in the class uh, from, from, the bosses back home, you know, they, they wanted and encouraged you to, to do that. So, so there, it was intensely competitive. Some people uh, dropped out, uh, which was kind of eye opening. Others weren't invited back, I, I guess, because they got poor grades or they, uh, who knows, did, did some bad behavior. I don't know. But, you know, IBM was pretty nurturing back then, but it, but it was, it just seemed pretty, uh, pretty cutthroat. But uh, but it was good because you you learned a huge amount about selling, uh, and w- which is still relevant today. Things like uh, connecting the dots on uh, pain points that a customer might have uh, in that, that would be inhibiting them to achieving their objectives, and how to provide good service, how to listen. Uh, IBM at the time was very value based. Uh, you know how how can they make how can they help their customers transform their business by using this hardware uh, against a set of applications that that really drove the services that they sold? And and a lot of that is still very, very relevant uh, today. The, the thing, thing that, that always stands out to me with IBM's approach is there were real consequences to those trainings. You had to take them seriously. You had to perform, you were ranked, you could potentially be put on plan or even asked to leave if you weren't either taking the program seriously or, or digesting the program. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because you know IBM was very smart. They figured we're gonna invest in our people and it was very costly to send us to these, these training camps. It really was. And they figured we're gonna find out who's got the stuff and who doesn't 
early because because once they finish this, they're kind of IBM for life, or at least yep. we'll we'll try uh, to do that. I uh, I started off my career out of business school at Siebel. And in many respects, Siebel, I think, was built on that that IBM model of train your people, invest in your people, but make sure there are consequences of that training. I remember I was living up in Seattle at the time. The training was down in the Bay Area. They put us in a hotel for a month. And at first, the plan was not to send us home at all. <laughs> we were just hauled up in the hotel for a month. It was the Marriott there on, on 101 in San Mateo. And we went to class every day for nine hours a day feverishly taking notes. There was a final at the end of this. And I remember, um, you know, you were up until the wee hours of the morning cramming for the test. And the level of intensity around that was as high as anything I'd experienced thus far in school. You recognize that people were taking it seriously and that your job very much was dependent on how you performed. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, we learned the material and it also set a tone when you come into an environment like that. And that's the that's the culture. You always take the training and the material seriously after that. And the competitive nature, you know, going to Siebel or going to an IBM or any number of tech companies or, or many companies today, you, you want to, um, you know, your your colleagues are kind of your competitors. You know, you in a friendly sort of a way, you want to you want to beat them. <laughs> you know, it's. Kind of real world stuff. Yeah, it it brought out the best in us. That 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 was, I think, the premier year for Survivor. So, in addition to, we were a hundred percent focused on the material, but we had a little side bet going on Survivor and who was going to get bounced out week over week. So that's how we that's how we passed the time if we weren't focusing on the uh, the Siebel web engine. That's tough. All right. So great, great time at IBM and then BMC, another another legendary sales company. And you were there for 18 years. I always love to ask people that are uh, that eclipse the decade mark at a given company. What kept you around so long? Well, essentially, I wanted to find my level of incompetence and uh, and BMC uh, allowed for that. You know, it was a uh, it was a growing company. Uh, you were able to grow with it if you were agile and and a constant learner. There was always something new to pursue, you know, every few years. I always thought I wanted to be a CEO, but I didn't really have the guts to tell anyone. I don't know why, but I didn't. Uh, maybe I was afraid to lay it out publicly for fear of of actually having to do it someday. But so instead, I just kept trying to get to the next step and then the next step. And at BMC, there was always that opportunity. I could learn something new, have fun, and I wouldn't have to leave the company in order to do that because, yeah. because it was growing and they were making acquisitions and, and the like. So, um, you know, there, it, was, it was just a great place to do that. And there are lots of great companies to do that, but you know, they had a broad product set and, uh, and lots of people. And, you know, it was a, it was a fun time. I uh, was able to get a very broad set of experiences as a result that that helped afterwards and even to this day, you know, being uh, a number of years as an inside sales rep and then an outside sales rep, moving into sales management, managing a specialist organization. Uh, they moved me around a few times, got to open up the Southeast office in Atlanta, um, ran the Americas. Uh, ultimately, uh, be, was asked to move to Asia, move the family there for three years. And then, and then at the, towards the end, 
we, we had made this acquisition that was sort of floundering and they, they asked me to run it. Uh, and, uh, and it was like a CEO job. So it was like the, mm. you know, the, 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 my ultimate objective, although it was not of the whole company, it was kind of a company within the company, but it had all of the functions. So, yeah. uh, so it was, it was really cool to have that set of experiences at BMC for all those years. That's Tom Schodorf, former CRO of Splunk. When we come back, Tom talks about how the greatest setback in his career actually set the stage for his greatest success. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Tom Schodorf, former CRO of Splunk. Tom earned his stripes at some of the sales powerhouses of the 90s and 2000s. But after nearly two decades at BMC, life threw him a curveball. His refusal to make excuses or pass blame characterizes Tom's formula for success, and it ultimately propelled him towards a dream he never expected to achieve. Let's get back to the discussion. This was essentially for you the the supermarket of tech. You had all of these different roles. You could explore them and really understand how a technology company functioned. I love the analogy, and I use this a lot for my own career, a career is a lot like, a, or a company is a lot like an amusement park, and you get to ride all the rides, and you can ride the ride until you're bored, and then you go ride another ride, and when you've ridden all the rides you want to ride, then you go to another company. But I think that that curiosity, like what is actually in the tank, what am I capable of, or at what point am I incapable, that is a question that drives a lot of people and continues to stretch people. Yeah, yeah. So, so 18 years, good long run. Why did you decide to move on from BMC? Well, I didn't. <laughs> I, it wasn't my decision. It wasn't my choice. They, uh, they removed me from the company. Okay. <laughs> uh, fortunately, it was not for performance reasons, which, which would have been a little more devastating. But uh, they wanted to change the culture of the company. And I was a senior person by then, one of the top handful of people in the company. And, you know, if you want to change the culture of a company, uh, what better way to do it than to change the people who represented the culture? And, you know, I, I have to admit that I represented the culture by then and, uh, and was a big part of it. So, uh, so it was totally the right decision if that was your objective. And, and I appreciated that. Uh, and to their credit, they got a new culture out of it. So, uh, so that's why I left <laughs> BMC. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a perception that as you move up the ranks, you're safe uh, by nature of your position. That is not the case. Uh, and there are a number of, of forces at work in many cases that have nothing to do with your performance, how you approach the job, um, but definitely have a bearing on your career. Um, so your story is one that's been repeated many times in many places. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was a humbling moment and it's, it was really good to have experienced it. Yeah. What, what was that like when you got when you got the word? How did you feel emotionally and just psychologically? How did you deal with the trauma? Well, I had several reactions. Um, the the whole event of the uh, of the firing took about eight minutes um, and it was on the phone. <laughs> so, you know, so, again, you know, when you're when you move up the ranks, it. You know, there, there can be a long drawn out thing, I guess, when they're working on a transition plan or something, or it's like 
you know, 18 seconds and you're done. <laughs> We've all done this. Just tell me what you need to tell me. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, so my, my, uh, my first reaction was, was a little bit of a chuckle. Like, I, I guess what comes around goes around. You know, we've been around long enough and I was through the dot-com uh, uh, bubble and bur- subsequent burst. So I had hired and fired literally a hundred people by then, probably. And, uh, you know, I guess it was my turn. So I, I was just kind of, it was kind of funny, you know, in a way. Uh, but this, the second reaction was, oh no, uh, this is an absolutely terrible time to be removed from a job. Because it's 2008, towards the end of 2008, the financial crisis had hit. There were no jobs. It was a terrible time to mm-hmm. uh, to get fired. And then the third the third reaction, although it didn't last too long, was, dang, that, that stung. I mean, that just sort of yeah. hurt my ego, like 17, 18 years and, you know, this. Um, so so it's 2008. Half your half your net worth is wiped out in the market. You lose your primary source of income and you go and there's no jobs. You know, what, what are you going to do? So uh, so I went out for a run and after about, you know, plug my music in after about five minutes, I'm like, ah, this is OK. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get over it. Um, so, um, uh, you know, got myself in the right frame of mind, uh, did a little bit of, you know, looking to see if there was something immediately available uh, in, in terms of employment, there wasn't. And, um, and so I said, what, what can you do at this part of your career or this part of your life that when you are working, you can't do or don't have time? So I took up golf. What, what bigger of a time suck <laughs> than golf? <laughs> you can't, you can't. So my wife and I did lots of golf. Uh, and we went on a, uh, a three week long road trip, three or four weeks long road trip with the family, just driving around the country. Uh, we, we had a great time. We loved every minute of it. Um, it was the first time in my life that I didn't have to work through the holidays, uh, it, which was in, incredibly, uh, I don't know, Nirvana like it was just yeah. so different to uh, to not have to close a quarter or close a year and and do all the things with planning and, and I did lots of projects around the house things that were piling up caught up on about 3 to 4 years worth of book reading <laughs> I mean it was it was just awesome uh but but eventually I wanted to get back to work so uh, yeah. so I started researching companies and then then aggressively marketed myself and and uh and and got out there and and got a job so when the going gets tough, the tough go golfing because <laughs> yeah, the takeaway or skiing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, there was a point in my career where I was also uh, sidelined, not outright fired, but basically given a different job, which was a significant demotion. So for all intents and purposes, I'll say I was fired. And for me, what I needed to do, what I needed to figure out around that experience is what is my self-confidence based on? Is it based on the title on my business card or the number of people in my organization? And when that was taken away, I had to get back to the essence of who I was. And also going back to your point, ask myself, um, can I get through this? You know, what is the level of, of my capability and can I take this 
shock and make it through successfully. And it was a hard time, but in retrospect, it was a really important time in just my formation. Yeah, totally get it. So you, uh, you came through, hopefully your golf game improved significantly, started to actively market yourself. And then of all companies, one thing, one thing on, on golf, I found my level of incompetence really quickly. (laughs) There it was. There it was. It was right around 90. It was not that good. I love it. All right. So you learned something about yourself. And then of all companies, you land at Splunk. We, We know what Splunk is today. Tell us about Splunk back then and why you chose that company. Well, first of all, nobody knew what it was <laughs> at all. Um, it was a 120-person uh, company at the time, but uh, but I had, you know, I, I want you know during the time off, I did have time to reflect on on what what I would want in a in a company that I would eventually go back to work in uh, work at, assuming that the money didn't run out. Um, and, and, and what I was looking for was a company with a big TAM, uh, or a, a product or a service that had a big TAM. I, I think it's very difficult if, if the market is not there to, to have a successful career. And I didn't want to just be there for, you know, a few months, I'm not a job hopper. So, so that was very important. I, the company had to have a good product, not necessarily the best product in the world. Uh, and it didn't even have to be a discovered product. But one that I could feel proud about selling and uh, and calling on my uh, customers uh, and putting my name and reputation on. Mm-hmm. Um, third, I, I wanted a, a company where I could go and have a role where I could completely build the team and the culture, the field culture. Mm-hmm. I didn't need to build the whole company culture, but the field culture. I, w- I want to be in control of that because I saw so many cultures that I didn't like. And, and at times, even at BMC, I worked at some that, that were not, you know, in alignment with my values, let's say. Uh, so, I, so I wanted to build I wanted to prove that you could win the right way. So that's all wrapped around, you know, where I could, I could build it and be in control. And then fourth and finally, I wanted to have a, the opportunity at a big score. I mean, why not? You know, I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a, a big time athlete for me, the, the F, athleticism or the the athletic score is is more uh financial or um you know taking a a company ipo and and being a big part of that and helping other people realize their dreams so not that it was guaranteed but just that it's possible Uh, yeah and splunk seemed to fit that bill so uh, that's why uh that's why it was a good company uh, for me at the time so in that respect you did all right you did all right you came in it was 30 million dollars Five years later, it's a billion dollars in revenue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love this story here. The guy gets fired from BMC, takes some time off and does some golfing, and then comes into this company and uh, grows it to a billion dollars. That's that's really an incredible story and an and inspiring story. So, of course, I have to ask, how did you do that in, in that kind of time? Well, first of all, it's an incredibly good outcome, one that I would have never, ever even dreamed of having at at BMC. Um, but, you know, kind of, I guess the, the way it happened, you know, so there's always a little bit of luck in this. Um, and, and for me, the luck was, you know, a little bit of timing. Uh, Splunk had a good foundation. 
It had, um, you know, some of the things I talked about already. Uh, it also had a relatively new CEO in Godfrey Sullivan, who I happened to be completely in line with in terms of thought process and chemistry. And, uh, and he's very much a go to market guy. So it was, which is a blessing and a curse in some ways, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but he was, a, he's a great man. And, and I learned a ton from him. So the, so the foundation was pretty good. The, the, the founders did a, a good job setting it up. Uh, the company had not quite taken off yet, but it, but it had good bones. Um, and then, and then we, we took it from there. We, I, I wouldn't say that we had a, um, you know, a, a formula. Um, but, but if we did, uh, I would say that there are some, there are probably you know, three major core tenants in it. Um, the first one, and, and these are going to sound like, oh, everybody knows that. Um, yeah. but, but of course everybody does know it. The, the thing is, is can you execute against it? That's the challenge. It's always the challenge, but, but also, you know, somebody else may have a different formula. You know, there are different ones that work, but the ones that work for me and, and still I think are applicable today is to hire the right people at the right times. So, and, and I add the right times. It's not just the right people. I found plenty of people I'd want to hire, but I'm not ready for them yet. Mm. Or, or I, I would have been ready for them three years ago, but now they're, they've already, you know, gone a different direction or we've gone a different direction and they're no longer applicable. So, uh, you know, think of what you need in terms of skills and abilities and, and when you need it, hire to your gaps and your own skill set. Uh, and, and then, you know, do that. And that is like number one. If you get the right people on board, your job is so much easier. So, mm-hmm. so if there's a formula, hiring is like right at the top. The second yep. thing is, is just enough process, especially if you're in a company that is going to scale or that you want to scale. Uh, if, if you don't have enough process, you're never going to scale because everyone's reinventing the wheel. No one knows what their roles are, where it begins or ends. It's just a mess. And if you have too much process, then then you're wasting time on administrative work. Um, you're you're uh, you risk not getting compliance on the processes you have and the, and the people that you rely on because they know mm-hmm. that it's just a big old rule book instead of doing what needs to be done. And then third and finally, um, if there's a formula, I would say the, the third thing is to create a culture of accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when people are accountable to each other, to themselves, to the business, you're going to have a lot better uh, results. So th- those to me are the core three things. Well, I'll come back to a point you made initially, which is these don't sound revolutionary, but they make all the difference. Benioff is famous for saying the tactics define the strategy. And I think what he means by that is it's the way that you execute, the things that you do when you're trying to do the right thing that differentiates great companies from the rest. Um, So let's drill into each of those a little bit. Let's start with hiring. How do you hire the right people? Yeah, this is, um, it's art and science, kind of like so many things. Uh, it, it is, it is a very big deal. It's a very involved process. At least for me, it is. Now, some people, again, there's different styles. Some people will just hire a bunch of people, see if they work out in the first 90 days, get rid of the ones that don't, and, you know, figure that the cream rises to the top that fast. And that's their model. That's not my model, but that's a lot of people's model. Uh, for me, it's, it's a very big deal. And, um, and there are a lot of people involved. 
but initially, we're going to hire against a skill will matrix, which is virtually the same one that we're going to measure people against after they join the company. Uh, with skill being things like, you know, maybe ability to do a persuasive presentation. This is for a salesperson now. Uh, it's different for an SE. It's different for a, you know, sales ops and so on. But if it was sales, like ability to do a persuasive presentation, they can forecast accurately, they can do a demo, they can build a bounce pipeline, things like that. The things on the will side that, that typically were there are being a team player, uh, have, you know, the company should be over self, you know, don't be selfish, you know, hold the company mm-hmm. up. Um, desire to win, having passion. Uh, but you, you can identify a lot of those things in the interviewing process. And, and when, you, when you know what those are, it ends up being a job description, which makes it easier to hire to those people. And they're going to more likely be successful. Anyway, then we put them through lots of interviews. Um, and, and the interviews are with other managers as well as other functions potentially. And then ultimately, and this I did this for the first probably 700 people that we hired over there is that I would have the final interview on every one of them and which took an enormous amount of time. But what I was looking for is the, is the cultural fit and the will stuff. Because yeah. if, if they're highly skilled and by now with all the other interviews, they should be uh, completely measured on that. I want to make sure that they're going to be able to be promotable mm-hmm. and, it's on those aspects that typically they would be promoted. So uh, that, and that helped us scale. So um, a couple other tips on hiring, you know, get different gene pools. There's a tendency for a lot of people to hire from who they know, but, but but I would argue that the, wherever you came from, the, the top, who you think are your top five people to hire from there cannot possibly be the five best people in the industry You may have the top one and then the number four, but the number two, three and five probably come from somewhere else. So get different, get different uh, companies or different um, uh, gene pools, different bloodlines, if you will, uh, to come in. You'll you'll be treated to greater performance as a result. So those are some of the some of the things that we would do on hiring. There's a lot more behind it, though. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. I want to go back to that point about you having the final interview, and I imagine these were pretty short, say a half an hour. How did you size a person up in a half an hour and determine, what did you ask them to determine if they had the will to be successful? Um, well, first of all, they, they almost always took one hour <laughs> Okay, and it, it depends on, um, it depends on the person. I, I would usually uh, do a little bit of prep work. I would look at some of the notes from some of the other people. I would, um, uh, I would look at their resume. I want to know about the, you know, their formative years, because to me, again, when I shared with you the will attributes of company over self. I'm, I'm really looking for, um, you know, people who are unentitled. I'm looking for people who did hard work for a living at some point, people who faced adversity, um, people who, sh- who persevered, 
And, I, and I'm asking questions around that. I'm asking them to tell me stories about, you know, mm-hmm. when this happened, what did you do? Um, and, and I'll get even more granular than that. Like for a salesperson, I might say, you know, when you were when you were screwed out of a commission, how did it make you feel? And, and that alone, I, I won't give all the you know, potential answers to that. But you learn a lot about a person by how they answer that question. Yeah. I mean, at a very high level, if they if they say, well, that's never happened, well, then they probably don't have much experience <laughs> because it happens. And then and then where do they put the blame? You know, you learn a lot about a person. So there's yeah. questions, questions like that to root it out if they have the will. You were you were looking for the kid that pushed the lawnmower around and gave half the proceeds to his dad because he, he, he was smart enough to know he was still better off in the end. <laughs> Indeed. Well, there's a lot of wisdom to that. I I, uh, I love that approach. Um, all right, let's go on to just enough process. A lot of times people talk about the importance of process, but you throw in the qualifier just enough. How do you figure out what just enough is and, and how did you implement that at Splunk? Yeah, it's it's probably it's probably good to, to go through an example uh, on this. Um, it's uh, just sales process. Every company has a sales process, uh, but I found out that we did not. There were only fifteen sellers when I came came to Splunk. We did not have a defined sales process, and that frustrated me um, because we were never on the same page as a team or as a company. One person's commit was another person's upside. Demos were inconsistent. Use cases were described in different terms. Uh, we didn't know the value of the products. There were too many different tools and templates that people brought from other companies. The, the list goes on. So, um, so I brought the best sellers, the three best, best sellers into a room and asked them to whiteboard how they sold. And they, they didn't at first know what I was talking about, but you know, ultimately we got to a point where they sort of drew it out one on one whiteboard, one on another, one on another. And, um, it was very interesting because there was just this complete mix and mash of everything that you've ever heard of spin, Tass, Sandler, medic, uh, mix of a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and, uh, and nobody was doing it the same way. So it was a mix even within their sales process and nobody's doing it. So I challenged them to put, put it together just around a framework of five stages uh, and which, you know, the basic sales stages and, and then, and a maximum of one thing that has to happen in each of those stages before we would minimally expect to move the prospect to the next stage. Mm -hmm. And we spent a couple of days on it and uh, until we could all agree that this mostly gets us there, at least gets us mm-hmm. 70% of, or at least the three people in the room would agree that they would follow it. Now, now they could always add stuff if they want their, you know, whatever their history was, they could add that. But, but we agreed on that. And then we put it into the CRM and we said, everybody had to follow it. And again, it was fairly minimal. You could have gone a lot more complicated, but by having it minimal, and by having it where the floor leaders who are the most successful people in the business put it together and could put their name on it, everybody abided by it because they knew if they did those things, they would have a better chance at retiring their quota. Right. So right. that's how that's how we did it. Well, there's a couple of great lessons in there. First of all, as the new sales leader, you weren't afraid to lock yourself in the room with a couple of other people and personally do the work. 
I think as a result of that, you learned some things about the business, but you also got results quickly and could then roll those out in an accelerated time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, that's a very nice compliment, but really I did it out of necessity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if we would have had one or had somebody to do that work, I probably wouldn't have done it. Well, you, you knew you weren't going to be on the golf course. So what else did you have going on? Might no, as well figure out a sales process. No, when, no, when you're an operator, you're back to 90 <laughs> hours a week and that golf is not happening. <laughs> that's for sure. All right. Let's hit that third point, which is hold your people accountable. What did that mean for you to hold your people accountable? Well, first of all, you, you, to me, you have to look inward. Um, you, you have to make sure that they understand how their role fits within the KPIs of the business and how how those dots are connected. Uh, because you want to put the company in the best position to achieve its goals and mission and, and vision. Otherwise, you don't have a, a moral high ground to hold anybody accountable to anything. So, so you have to communicate that. You have to give them the tools and the training uh, and the product even to do the job. Um, for example, punishing them for losing a deal to a competitor without helping them with the data and the techniques and the overall support to win is, is nothing better than yelling at the scoreboard when your team is losing. I mean, it doesn't change the score. So you, you have to back up and you have to see where you fell down as a company and you got to give them those tools and you got to train them. Um, and only then can you can you hold them uh, accountable. So, um, you know, so so that's what you got to do. Um, and when you do that, then then you, the way you hold them uh, accountable is you call them out. I mean, that's like a first step. If people are not delivering what they say they're going to deliver, then then you got to call them out in one way or another. It could be at a QBR, it could be in a staff meeting, it could be any number of ways, and it could be even in different functions. Um, when people commit to something, they, they, they should deliver. Now, you don't humiliate them when you do this. That, that doesn't work. Um, at least it didn't, didn't work in the culture that we were trying to build. It may work in another. Uh, but uh, usually they're tougher on themselves when you, when you call them out on it. Like, this isn't getting done and you're the you're the person in the room that has to present and you're you're not presenting accomplishments you're presenting fluff it, yeah. it doesn't people start to to look at you funny so um so you do that you you know you don't allow for passive aggressive behavior you know if if you make a commitment in the in the meeting you don't decommit behind everybody's back afterwards uh but ultimately there needs to be consequences if if you continue to not deliver, then you will be uh, removed or demoted to a place that you're going to be more happy. Right. So with respect to the managers, they carry the responsibility both of delivering the number. You talked a lot about, though, about hiring the right people as well. From a hiring perspective, a team building perspective, how do you hold your managers accountable for that? Well, good, good point to bring up. Um, they, they have to prove consistently that they can bring people on board that are uh, equally or more talented than they are, at least in some ways. And if they do not consistently, then they themselves will be terminated. Building a strong team is job number one of a, man, a people manager, in, in my opinion. And we did remove people for not being able to do that or ask them to take on a contributor role 
because there is a, a certain amount of skill that, that it takes, but it was never acceptable to hire a mini me uh, who's just not as good. It's just, no, that's, that's not what we do here. So you, you, you can't do that. Yeah, that, that idea that uh, the great leaders are the leaders that are able to hire the people that will replace them and do an even better job, it's a high standard. But ultimately, I've heard that theme come back again and again in, in high-performance organizations. Well, and the people who did it, the people who did it, even if some of the people who they brought in ended up higher level, the, the people who did it still ended up much better off. You know, they were they were handsomely rewarded uh, in their current job, even if they didn't go any higher, but also um, with the, the pleasure of knowing that a, a lot of the other uh, parts of the company were seeded by their good coaching, mentorship and and hiring at the front end. So it, it's you know, they still won. You still win when you hire p- great people. You know, one of my observations is that the companies that do it right have this whole integrated system that starts with a very distinct hiring profile that leads into the metrics that are used to measure success, the processes, the assets, and the tools. What you're describing here in terms of hiring people that are better than you takes a humble person, a person that wants to win, a person that's a team player. If you can attract that kind of a person, you can then get the behavior that allows them to hire the right people underneath them. And it all works together beautifully. But if you get the wrong mentality in the door, the system completely unravels. Yeah. So, and maybe you're saying this more eloquently than I can, but you see how it ties right back into how you hire to skill and will when you've properly identified the will attributes that will lead to hiring a person who is of that ilk. I mean, so it, 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 it's kind of a closed loop system. It reinforces another, itself. Another point I wanted to call out, you, you said that you personally met with each person that was going to be hired up to 700 people. I find that great leaders prioritize the time they spend with their teams, building their teams, recruiting the teams. And the way that you know whether or not it's a priority is not what they say when they're standing up in front of people. The way that you know is you look at the calendar and you figure out, where is the time actually going? And the leaders that mean it are the ones that actually have that time to recruit, to develop, to build on the calendar. And it's a material chunk of the time that they're spending. Yeah. Counter to that is the, even if you don't look at their calendar, but that's a great way to, to do it. If you, if you can see it, if you can find it, but if they're, if they're constantly making uh, comments like, well, recruiting didn't get me anybody this week, or, um, you know, I, I talked to the, I talked to HR and they haven't delivered me any any good, you know, good folks or, uh, you know, the people they're giving me are crap or, you know, whatever. Well, you're not yeah. doing you're not doing your job. It's kind of like yeah. a uh, kind of like a sales rep with a with a, a franchise uh, with, a, with a with a territory there. While it's great to have uh, great leads served up to you on a silver platter, you are responsible for your own pipeline ultimately. And you need to drive that. And you need to drive the pipeline of deals and you need to drive the pipeline of talent, however you can. It's your responsibility. I, I was having a fascinating conversation with another person who's been on the show, John McMahon. And he said, you know, I was always recruiting even when I didn't have spots. And I could tell you in every city in the country who the best reps were. And when I traveled to those cities, I would meet with them 
And maybe I didn't have a job to offer them, but I knew who they were. And then I'd ask them, who do you think the best reps are? And to me, again, as an executive traveling, usually you would think I'm traveling to close a deal or uh, take care of an internal office policy. That idea, though, of carving out time to actually find out in Chicago who are the best people and I'm going to meet with them and they're going to know me and we're going to have a relationship so that when I do need to bring on a rock star VP in Chicago, I don't have to go to recruiting. I know who the person is. I pick up the phone. I give him a call. Well, he's a smart man. That's a great technique. Yeah. All right. Um, I wanted to go back to this relationship that you built with Godfrey. You said that out of the gate, you guys saw eye to eye. Arguably, the relationship between the CRO and the CEO is one of the most important at the company. Can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic and how it blossomed at Splunk? Sure. Uh, although I have a slightly different view of it, in, in my case and in, in many cases I've observed, actually the most important relationship at that level is the CRO and the CFO. Um, of course, you need to have a great relationship with your boss, but but the CRO is often controlling the biggest budget, the biggest variable spend, and the CFO is usually controlling the inflow and the outflow of the money. So there's, there's a huge um, opportunity for day-to-day, month-to-month, week-to-week tension between those two roles on deal construction and discounting and the timing of hiring and you know expensive resources like quota carriers and internal systems arguments and the list goes on. But having said that, with Godfrey, uh, we work together both formally and informally uh, in, a, in a cadence. Uh, the formal part consisted of, of an annual planning cycle, which took months. Uh, but we agreed, and it was really, really important to agree on a tops down and a bottoms up number. And of course, the CFO is involved in this as well. This is the source of huge amounts of consternation and angst in the company, is the agreement on the number itself. You get that out of the way, that's a big rock. A lot of, a lot of the rest of the stuff is just details. Uh, but, but that's super, super important. It takes a long time. You, you got to have discussions about capacity and, and you know, where the business needs to go and investment and so forth. So we had the annual, annual planning cycle. We had quarterly business reviews. Sometimes these would be a few days long uh, with, with uh, my staff and, and with, uh, with Godfrey in attendance if he wished. Uh, and he went to some of them or he went to one day of them or you know, wh- whatever. Uh, but they're very in-depth and, and a lot of very great output was was uh, produced that was then shared um, with him. Uh, and then we, we would have monthly uh, headquarter weeks where uh, because the e-staff was spread out all over the country and the world, we would all agree to be in San Francisco for that week. And we had a series of formal meetings and some informal ones as well. So, so there was th- that formal cadence around all those things I just talked about. And, um, and then there was informal stuff, like when we were in town at the same time, walking the hallways, grabbing lunch, coffee, um, doing town halls together in various cities if we happened to, you know, pass, tent, would cross. So th- those were all really important. But it's like any relationship. You, ha- you have to trust each other. And you, tr- you find out that you're much better at trusting each other if you go to combat together. So you got to spend time. You just you can't just expect it to happen. You got to spend time formally and informally. And, and that's what we did. And it, and it worked, I think, very, very well. 
I'm glad that you called out the importance of the relationship between the, the chief revenue officer and the CFO. I like to refer to a concept which I call the working capital of sales. If you think about a sales leader, they are constantly living six, nine, 12 months in the future. They've got to build the team today that delivers the revenue tomorrow. And, and that can be expensive. You need to hire more managers. You need to hire more salespeople. You need to invest in other areas. The CFO is the one that needs to finance that. And in many cases, there needs to be trust that if they invest in this future set of assets and resources, they can have confidence that the, the revenue will come. And in that respect, the relationship of trust has to be there in order for that, in order to lubricate the, uh, the financials that allow the salesperson to build what they need. Absolutely. You got to have the no-look pass capability. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, in, and in some cases, making sure that you know that one or the other will pick up the fumble after you drop the ball. <laughs> that, that inevitably, as inevitably happens. All right, you sit on many boards today, so you have a unique perspective both from, from a larger company but also from early-stage ventures. Tell me a little bit about the mistakes that early-stage stage ventures make when it comes to sales. Yeah, there, there, are, there are two that really stand out to me. And, of course, this is, does not apply to every startup or every founder, but, but I do see it fairly frequently. Uh, and that is, especially with technical founders, uh, the, the notion that the product sells itself, you know, that the product, that, that anybody can sell this. And I, I think what, what some founders forget is that when you're starting the company and, and you, you reach a certain point that you need, you feel you need salespeople. Well, why is that? Well, the, the very, you, you feel that because you probably clipped off the early adopters and you've made a custom product for them. And therefore there's a natural tendency to think that it sells itself after that, but it doesn't because the next set of adopters are not so easy unless you make a customized product for everyone and you can't because then you will never scale. So thinking the product sells itself, it's a, it's a problem with some, some founders and some startups. And then secondly, uh, unaligned or poorly communicated messaging. So, sometimes founder CEOs or early stage CEOs will, will get up and, and talk about these platitudes and taking over the world and all this stuff, but, but they don't connect the dots to the salesperson or the ultimate customer that a salesperson who is selling to the non-early adopter is likely to encounter. So the, the messaging has to be translated a little better for them to be a little bit more effective. And I think that's one of the big mistakes uh, that they make. On your first point related to the accounts that you go after, I've observed something similar. You know, there's a requirement when you're small and you have relatively few resources that you have to be very focused, ultra focused on a particular segment. The extreme case of that is one or two customers when you're uh, angel investment series A. The challenge is at some point, roundabout series C, you actually have to expand the TAM, uh, the, the total addressable market, because if you don't expand the TAM, you're not going to see the growth that takes you into the D round, takes you into the IPO, makes you an attractive company for acquisition. And I think the mistake that companies make very early on is they're not focused enough, but then they don't know when to shift gears and say, all right, now it's time to expand the aperture and go after a larger addressable market. Yeah, that's a great point. It has to keep 
it has to keep opening and there has to be a concerted effort to make that happen. It doesn't right. just, it doesn't just happen because an analyst or a banker said that this is what it should be. You, you actually have to work at it. Yeah. Well, Tom, it's been a great conversation. We've covered a whole host of topics and I certainly appreciate the wisdom that you've shared. I thought maybe we could end on one final question. And that is, as you look back over the arc of your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that you think has made the most difference for you? I, I would say that the kind of the overarching thing, and it's it's just two words, but they they hit me every day and they they connect to almost everything that not only I do, but that people do that appears to make the difference between success and maybe not as great a success. And that's deferred gratification. Ah. And, and I could, I could talk on it all day long, but um, it's, it's, it's just that the ability to, to wait, to build rather than, I guess, peeling off the profits too early, no matter what it is. I was just talking to uh, Scott Holden, who's the CMO out at ThoughtSpot, and he was a philosophy major of all things, studied a lot of Nietzsche. And uh, Nietzsche talked about the, the noble person is the one that will build a tree that will not ultimately come to fruition for 100 years. And the unnoble person is the one that plants the one that has the fastest fruit so that they can pull it off of the tree immediately. And in his mind, that was what made the difference between people. So uh, you're not alone your sentiment. <laughs> well, and you find, um, you find that it's a competitive advantage because a lot of people do not want to wait. And, but if you wait, you, you get so much more fruit that then your work is not as hard and you don't have to wait as long because you can keep harvesting. Yeah, yeah. So it ends up paying off in the long run, but even almost in the short run, it doesn't take long before you can get beyond that point to where most people can't stand it anymore. You just got to go wait a little bit longer, build a little bit more, and then, you, and then you're going to have harvests for the foreseeable future. Good ones. It's a great thought, Tom. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. You're quite welcome, Justin. Appreciate being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.